Hi friends, Zach Walker here, welcoming you back to episode four of the Intentionally Inclusive Podcast, a place for all of us to learn about and celebrate the things that make us unique and in the process to uncover some of the things that bring us together. We have a great episode planned for today with some exciting guests, but before we get to them, if you didn't know, and you might not, September is National Hispanic Heritage Month in the United States, uh, which runs from September 15th through October 15th. This recognizes the contributions and influence of Hispanic Americans on the history, culture, and achievements of the United States. It's an event that was first celebrated in Los Angeles in 1968, and the reason September 15th was chosen as the start date is because it's the anniversary of the independence of Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua from Spain in 1821. And there are other Latin American nations, including Mexico, Chile, and Belize, which also commemorate their independence in September. So I'd like to introduce our guests at this time. Uh, first, we have Yamile IB. Hi, Yamile. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, including your pronouns? Oh, pronouns. Okay. Um, she, her. And uh, my name is Yamile Haibi. I have a background in employment labor law. I've been an um, employment labor lawyer for about 27 years now. And I focus mostly on civil rights, uh, Title VII, that type of stuff in the workplace, representing employees and unions. And then I made a career transition to human resources, where I did a lot of consulting for uh, employers and creating a uh, culturally diverse workplace, workplace of choice, employer of choice, those types of things. And I'm currently working with Paychex as a human resources HR services coach. That's great. What made you make the change to Paychex? Oh, so, you know, it's interesting. It goes right to this topic, actually. Uh, I, um, I was working in uh, another company and I honestly was kind of bored. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I was interested in working for a company that really focused on diversity and not just if you think of like diversity in terms of minority, but opportunities for women, things like that. So Paychex was very attractive to me for that reason. And uh, I wanted somebody that was going to hire my genuine, authentic self. And we hear that expression a lot, but do we really mean it? And uh, Paychex was that company. So, you know. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Have we, have we been living up to your expectations? I think so. I mean, you hired a woman with an unusual sounding name who's over 50 and has purple hair and tattoos. So there you go. <laughs> That's great. It's, it's funny because our audience obviously can't see you on video, but I can. And I couldn't actually tell if your hair was purple or if it was just if, if it's black and it was kind of the color of, of the screen. But I love it. Purple. I think that's really cool. Very nice. So our other guest today is uh, Jose Bido. Jose, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for being here as well. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. I, um, I've been in the human resources and recruitment um, field for about 20 years now. I, I had to say first, I, I was born and raised in the Dominican Republic. Uh, we are, the Dominicans are the fifth largest population of Hispanic origin here, here in the U.S., um, I graduated with a degree in business, and but I, I also hold a master's degree in human resources from Florida International University. Um, and throughout my career, I worked closely with Hispanics, uh, representing you know a diverse group of countries and backgrounds. At some point in my career, I worked on career coaching, job placement, and cultural assimilation, you know, for Hispanic refugees, asylees, job seekers, uh, for one of the oldest and largest nonprofit. Uh, uh, organizations here in the county where I live. 
And uh, I also supported the diversity hiring efforts of you know several companies here in South Florida, which is where I live. And I've also been an adjunct professor of a human resources program for, for a University of Puerto Rico. They have a campus down here in Florida. Uh, I've been in paychecks also I, uh, for about a year and a half or close to two years. I happily married my wife, Jesenia, she, who's also a, a Paychex employee, and I have three sons, Jose, Benjamin, okay. and Samuel. We and, love the uh, Paychex family. I, yeah, and I, and I love it too. So thank you so much again for, for the invitation to be part of uh, this podcast. Yeah, it's really great to have both of you here. I, I had a chance to read a little bit about both of your backgrounds before today, and it just it made me really excited to talk with both of you uh, about this topic. So where in Florida are you, Jose? I am in South Florida, uh, specifically in Miami. Okay, yeah. Uh, I, and I and I do have to say, I don't have purple hair. I apologize. <laughs> you know, that was a... <laughs> but listen, it's important for you to know that if you want purple hair, it's an option available to you. Okay, yeah, no, I know. That's, that's great. That's going to be my next step. <laughs> <laughs> I've, um, I've been spending some time in South Florida myself this year, sort of splitting my time between uh, Florida and Rochester. And I am, when I'm there, I'm in Hollywood. So I've had the chance to travel around South Florida a little bit and get to know Miami um, just a little bit. And it's, it's really cool down there. Yeah. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, I mean, the music, the little, you know, cafecito, the Cuban coffee yeah. and all the, the wonderful things that we have down here. So, yes. Yes. I've been exploring 100%. a lot of, a lot of Cuban food, which has just been a culinary awakening for me. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yes, sir. That's my tribe. Yeah. Cuban. My family, my family's Cuban. Oh, very nice. Okay. So do you, do you enjoy eating Cuban food? Do you cook it? Yeah, I do. I do. In fact, um, it's kind of my uh, my silo of cooking. I make really great Cuban sandwiches, and that does count as cooking. I don't care what anyone says. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I make a, during the holidays, I take the three days to make a big, what we call a lechon, a big pork roast, and um, I do. I take the time. I have my cafe con leche every morning. And I, I scoff at Starbucks and Panera's pale rendition of it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, my, my, my uh, philosophy on food is that if it starts out as separate ingredients and when you're done with it, it's turned into an actual meal, then that counts as cooking, whatever you've done to it. I'm with you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so before we get into deep into the topic of the month, National Hispanic Heritage Month, and I do want to hear from both of you why this topic is so important to you and have you kind of share a little bit about um, why it was important for you to be here today. I did also want to start by talking about the basics, uh, some of the language of, of the event. So uh, National Hispanic Heritage Month, uh, it's called that because that's how the event originated in 1968 in Los Angeles, and it's the name that's been used ever since. Um, Hispanic, I know, originates from the Spanish word Hispano, which means a person whose cultural traditions originate from Spain. Uh, but I also know, having done some research, that that can be considered a little problematic because it removes focus not only from the pre-Columbian peoples who were here before Spanish, the Spanish colonized the Americas, but it also ignores entirely any sort of African heritage that many uh, people have. So I wanted to talk about language and sort of what do you prefer when you're talking about people of Hispanic heritage? I know some other terms might be Latin, uh, Latino, Latina, Latinx. What are your thoughts? 
Um, if you may, I, I'll take a stab at it first. I, a couple of things that I think it's important for us to realize. And uh, so this debate about Hispanics versus Latino or Latina, it, it has been around for years. Um, so it's, I remember first hearing about it in the very early 90s when I was dating who's not my wife. And, you know, her, the debate at her, her school centered primarily about a desire to be free. You know, to avoid being put in a box um, and all the stigmas that, you know, came with it. So, you know, um, so at, at that point, at that time, uh, being a, so Hispanic was more like being a descendant or being colonized, you know, by Spain versus Latino. And some people said that that truly represented a true cultural identity. So, you know, when we ask how should we identify or name you know people from hispanic descent i think that we have to look at a couple of things you know number one in my experience the term latino and hispanic has tru are truly used very interchangeably and it's very widely used you know among latinos uh, or hispanics you know it's it's very interchangeable whether you know you you, you call us latinos or hispanics the other thing is that, like you said, Zach, so in terms of definitions, Hispanic, you know, uh, people from Spanish-speaking countries in Latin America, but then they, they are excluding Brazilians, for example, you know? mm -hmm. um, or Latinos, you know, people from Latin America, regardless of language, right? So I was looking at a couple of, you know, some research out there, and it was interesting to me that, that you know, 50% of Hispanics, because I was thinking about, about myself, I said, you know, how do I, um, when people ask me, you know, where are you from? I never said I'm Latino. I said I'm Dominican, you know, so, mm -hmm. and I found that 50% of Hispanics often describe themselves by their family, uh, their family's country of origin. Okay, so I'm Dominican, I'm Mexican, I'm Cuban, even if mm -hmm. they were born here, you know, and, and uh, more specifically, like 23% of, of, of Hispanics they use the term Latino or Hispanic and, you know, a good group of them prefer to be, you know, called, um, you know, Hispanics only. So, you know, I think that it was like 32% of Hispanics, you know, prefer Hispanics, but, you know, 51% of Hispanics, they have no preference. So truly, hmm. you know, there's no preference as to, as to, you know, whether or not you're going to call us Latinos or, or, or Hispanics and, you know, with the new term Latinx, you know, um, it, that's fairly new, of course, and, and it's very useful and understandable mm -hmm. in terms of gender neutrality. Um, but, you know, I, I was reading a definition recently about that, and uh, it said, like, you know, who's Hispanic? And it says, well, Hispanic is anyone who says that they are and nobody and nobody who says they aren't. So, you know, and <laughs> if you look at the even the, the census, you know, they they give this wide open range for Latinos and Hispanics to self-identify, you know, is you are Hispanic or Latino, are you Mexican, are you Puerto Rican? Yes, if you're Hispanic, where are you from? So it's that wide range for Latinos or Hispanics to self-identify ourselves. And, and I guess that, you know, they, they, after all of that, I think that the short answer, in my impression, in my experience, is always, you know, how do we like uh, on an individual basis to be uh, called? Yeah, that, that individual, choice of identification is really important to a lot of marginalized groups. I know it's the same in the LGBTQIA community. And so it makes sense to me that that's something that the Hispanic or Latinx community would also experience. Yeah, absolutely. Emile, how about you? Any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, no, I think he raises a very good point that it goes to the heart of individual identification and ways to distinguish Hispanic and X. You know, we look at basically Hispanic as somebody who speaks the language versus Latin as being of Latin American origins. But to his, Jose's research is actually is you know right on point with respect to everybody self-identifies in a different way. So culturally, a lot of folks will be like, I'm Venezuelan, I'm Cuban, I'm Costa Rican, I'm Dominican. And um, the identification is sort of aligned with not just the language, but with the country of origin and it's unique to each person. So I think when we're using those terms, we wanna create ways to kind of capture and generalize, but people still identify with the, their individuality and uh, the things that they feel are closest to their identity, the same way we use our pronouns individually. Uh, our identity as being Hispanic or considering ourselves Latin or considering ourselves Cuban or Cuban American in my case, that is how folks are identifying. I do remember, you know, back in the days when I was in law school, there was always an identification, there was identity crises going on when people were writing letters of recommendations for things like scholarships based on minority and people didn't want to be classified as a Hispanic. They want to be classified as I'm Venezuelan, I'm Colombian, I'm Cuban. And you know that debate and conversation mm. continues to evolve over the years. And ultimately, even the EEOC has taken the stance now that you are who you say you are. That's your identity. So if we look at you and we say, mm -hmm. purple hair, Cuban, yeah. you know? but I say, no, I'm Dominican, <laughs> then that's what, I, that's what I am. So it really goes to the heart of how you self-identify. And uh, yeah. I know, and just in the experience that I've had personally and representing people and working in HR, there's a, there's a tendency not to want to be lumped into a group. So we have, we have like, for example, in situations that come to Destin HR, well, you can't say they're discriminating mm -hmm. because everybody there is Latin that works there. It's like, well, no, you have different groups that identify differently from one part of the culture to a different part of the culture to a different part of the country. And even within each country, the dialects are different. Even in Spain, you have five main dialects. So, um, you know, you don't, certain words in certain languages uh, in Spanish mm -hmm. mean certain things in one country and in another Spanish speaking country, they mean different things. So there really is so much diversity within the group. And I think people find that way of identifying culturally important. Yeah, that makes sense. I think one of the one of the pitfalls of finding a catch-all term like Hispanic or Latinx is that you do tend to lump people together and assume that there are similarities um, or a sense of sameness where there isn't. And it can sometimes erase a lot of that uniqueness that's that's very important to people. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so so um, that is a kind of a good segue that that what's personally important to you into my next question, which is um, tell me a little bit about why this month's topic and why coming on this podcast was something that you thought would be both important to you and also um, something that you could share with the wider community. Well, uh, do you want me to go again? I can go again. Lego first. So. Yeah, jump right in. <laughs> so to there's me, no rules here. Uh, there's a couple of <laughs> things that are, that are important. Number one, I think that this is an important topic to talk about because we have to, you know, um, Hispanics or Latinos, you know, however you want to call us, we're a central part of the American society, you know. So we we we, we have to talk about uh, us and and you know our contributions. I believe we are close to 
or over a little bit over 62 million Hispanics in the U.S. right now. Um, so, yep. you know, what we say is important and how we react and what we do, uh, it's important too. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I think that, that moments like this um, allow for a conversation you know, about topics that are important to Hispanics throughout the culture. So, you know, raising awareness, educating other people about the, our values, our cultural richness, uh, like uh, Yamile was saying, our overall contributions to um, not just Hispanics, but, you know, the, the entire society. Um, and I think that third point on this mm -hmm. is that, you know, I think it's important, and I say this from personal experience, for everyone to truly know the Hispanic community at large, um, you know, in America. So without any type of stigmas, uh, or preconceived notions, you know, that have been created by either political, uh, racial, or, you know, immigration point of views, you name it. I think that, you know, we have to put those points aside and truly look at the Hispanic community at large. Um, and even, you know, go a little deeper, not just the entire culture, but the subculture within, within the, the entire uh, Hispanic culture. Uh, and so we can appreciate things like what we were talking about this morning, uh, you know, just a little bit earlier. Um, you know, food, uh, Cuban food versus Dominican food and, uh, and Cuban music mm -hmm. versus Dominican, Mexican, you know, Venezuelan, Costa Rican music, you name it. So there's a lot of richness uh, if you go a little deeper. And I think that, that the conversation uh, for decades have, has been very uh, on the surface as far as, you know, if you're Hispanic, then you're X, Y, or Z. And I think that, you know, even in the workplace, it's, it's you know, it's been uh, sort of uh, like that. Um, you know, for years in, 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 you know, throughout the U.S. So I think that it's that interest in going deeper and kind of, you know, truly getting to know us for who we are. I think that, that why, that's why conversations like this are so important. Yeah, I think, so you mentioned that there are more than 60 billion people who identify as Hispanic or Latinx in the United States, and that's, that's almost 20% of our population. And I don't think there is any other large group of people who make up such a, a significant portion of the population that anybody would ever try to lump into a singular group. So I think it's it's great that we're having the conversations about what are the differences in the wider community. Absolutely. Very cool. Yamile, how about you? So, you know, this question could be like, you know, a treatise for days and days, but, you know, yeah. for me personally, why this is important is obviously I focus my entire career on um, representing, you know, employees and folks in the workplace who feel that they've been discriminated against because of their race, their ethnicity, mm -hmm. their national origin, you know, on a personal level, obviously it's my national origin is from Cuba. But if you look at it and just in terms of pure numbers and how important, not just the contributions, the story of the different countries from Latin America and the different origins of Spanish-speaking peoples is so similar to the stories of the United States mm -hmm. as a whole in terms of coming to this country and looking for freedoms and opportunities and uh, contributing to this culture and, and country that is growing and expanding its values and its diversity. This population has to be represented because in the workforce, they, for now, for example, the pandemic, so many Hispanics are in industries that have been affected by the pandemic because they're in industries where the industries have just had to be shut down. They're not getting information, they're not getting work, they're being affected by the 
by uh, COVID-19 itself, bringing them back into the workforce. How are we going to get them back, back into these new jobs and these new opportunities as we reopen? So I just feel like this community is so large and has so much to offer. Mm -hmm. They need to have their voice <laughs> upheld and heard. So it's not just about, um, I'm always saying, it's not just about the food, but the food is good. You know, it's it's about the, the passion and the stories that bring these folks to this country and this opportunity and the same things that you hear of people trying to escape from religious freedom from, you know, Mother England back in the day. Here are, you know, family members and, and, and other people still in Cuba today mm -hmm. uh, rising up for freedom, political freedom, and all the different things that you hear around the world, like you see in Afghanistan and other countries. It is the same same story. They're, they're in this country for the values that we uphold and are the standard bearers for. So the community needs to be represented and it's important to me for those reasons. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense too. So uh, as, a, as a Cuban American, what are some ways that you connect with your Cuban American identity? I know that it's probably a strange question because it's just, it's who you are, right? But what are some things that connect you back to that culture as well as to your uh, American culture? Well, you know, my grandmother, okay? So my grandmother raised me. Mm. She was born and bred in Cuba and she raised me. And so my first language, even though I was born in this country is actually Spanish. And the things that connect me to my culture. So, you know, I'm big, I'm a big music fan. And, uh, you know, the music, of Cuba and the salsa and the old if you, old LPs. You remember the 33 and a half long playing albums that my father, when he was escaping Castro, managed to get to this country, bring with him. Still listen to those. And uh, you listen to things like the poet Jose Marti, who's um, very well recognized in Cuba and other parts of the community. He wrote the poem Juan Talamera about um, Cuba and the richness of the culture and the beauty of the mountains. That song has been sung by so many different artists of so many different cultures, including a folk singer, Pete Seeger, mm -hmm. here in the United States. So I connect a lot through the mm -hmm. music. And obviously, I already mentioned that I, I cook. <laughs> and Cuban sandwiches count as cooking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that part. But, I, you know, being close to culture and home and music and the people. Um, like I said, my grandmother is going to be 99 in October. And... Uh, you know, she represents like the long legacy and history of old world Cuba. Yeah. And are, are you second generation American or first generation born, first. born in the U.S.? Ah, okay. First, yeah. Very cool. My parents, yeah. And parents came in the 60s. Oh, okay. Very nice. And so, Jose, for you, um, so you were born in the Dominican Republic, right? And then made the move to the United States later in life. Yes. Yes, so okay. I was born in the Dominican and raised in the Dominican Republic. I went to college mm -hmm. in the Dominican Republic, graduated with my business degree there. Um, so my connection to my Dominican roots are very uh, recent. Mm -hmm. uh, I still have my mother. I still have my sisters in the Dominican Republic. All, you know, pretty much all my family is still there. And many of my friends are there. I've been here for, for many years here in the, in the U.S. So my connection, I, I love music too. I'm a musician. I, I like to play you know latin rhythms and you know with latin bands down here in miami so i i you know as you when you asked the question i thought about what my wife and i do on uh, every weekend which is that we go on 
have dinner at different restaurants from different countries. So we go to a Portuguese restaurant and we go to a Puerto Rican restaurant and we go to a Venezuelan restaurant. And believe it or not, that, that facilitates my connection with my own country. As I appreciate mm-hmm. the others and what they do and their, um, you know, and their food, it makes me appreciate mine. So, um, and, and of course, you know, my, my sons were born or ra- born uh, here in the U.S. So my connection mm-hmm. to America is, uh, you know, through them and through all my friends that I've developed throughout the years uh, over here. So, but I'm always, you know, connecting with my, my roots, my family and, uh, and my culture. Yeah. How old are your sons? Well, they are 16, 19 and 21. Okay. You know, so, and if you ask them, they say, you know, that they are 100% American. And 100% Dominican. My wife doesn't like it because she's Puerto Rican. So, you know, we have that debate <laughs> in the home. <laughs> okay. So I tell them, look, you know, they're 90% Dominican, perhaps 10. So that's another debate. So you anyway, say that, that's so, 10% for the Puerto Rican heritage. Okay. I, I'll leave it for her. Yes. Yes, sir. I never win it. So I'm just saying here you know, in front of all of you. I try. <laughs> just in case she's listening. You, you did try. Just in case. Abso- absolutely. <laughs> So how do you see your difference as someone who immigrated to the United States as being different from, say, your sons who are first generation American born? Yeah. So and I think that the best way to describe it is when I started working um, for the social service agency supporting refugees and asylees that came from other countries. And many came, uh, you know, with their professional degrees and they were, you know, executive at other companies that had to immigrate to the US due to, you know, war or, or violence. And, you know, I saw myself through them as well, you know, as far as the, you know, the shock of a different culture of coming with a different, you know, ways of seeing things. Um, you know, my childhood was a simple childhood. You know, we had no power sometimes in the neighborhood or we had no running water. So I had to, you know, we, we did not fuss or complain about it. We, you know, there was no electricity. Okay, let's buy some candles and do homework. Or there's no water, let's just go to the local water plant and get water and, you know, take a shower. And that was our, our reality. So, you know, there's some level of uh, resiliency that comes with that, that is passed from, you know, my family to me and to me, to my sons. So, you know, and again, that's just part of the adaptation to a new country, not just a new language, but also new um, ways of seeing things. Uh, you know, the fact that there's electricity, you know, 24 hours a day, that there's running water 24 hours a day. So all these things are uh, shocking for, you know, some people that come from underdeveloped countries. I think that, you know, that's part of uh, understanding, uh, you know, our realities is that, you know, that's part of our strength and our contribution to American society mm-hmm. is that we've, we've overcome many things to be able to get here and contribute. And uh, we're so blessed that we're given that opportunity here in this beautiful country. But, um, but I think that that's one of the things that uh, I hope that everyone uh, understands that, you know, if we, if we put aside all the things that we hear and we see in the news, in reality, at the bottom of it, there's a lot of people that want to do right. You know, a lot of people that come here that want to contribute, that truly want to make this their home this beautiful country, their home, and they do all they can to make it happen. And um, so, you know, I, I think that that's, that's, to me, what's most important about the discussion about, you know, Hispanics and, you know, and us is, is to, that we can put aside all these things that we see in the news and truly kind of get to know uh, people on a one-on-one basis. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's why, that's why I love doing this podcast. And that's why I love seeing the 
diversity, equity, and inclusion work that we're doing at Paychex um, and everybody. Uh, I think it's just, it's so important to talk to one another as people and share our experiences and have conversations and ask questions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's great. So I also wanted to talk a little bit about Spanish as a language. So Yamile, you mentioned that Spanish was your first language at home and Jose in the DR, of course, it, it was your first language as well. What is the relationship between Spanish and the Hispanic and Latinx community? I know obviously not everyone who is Hispanic or Latinx speaks Spanish, but there's, there's a close language identity there as well. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, my sister doesn't really speak Spanish. I'm the oldest. And uh, so I had started school already in this country and learned English. So I spoke to her as my sibling in English. So she's learning Spanish as an adult. So, you know, it's part of the cultural upbringing. So we try so hard to preserve it. And um, Jose, I don't know if this is true in your family, but in our family, we tried very hard. Our, my parents and my grandmother tried very hard and my aunts and uncles to always speak to us in Spanish so that we would preserve the language as part of our identity and our culture and who we are. Mm-hmm. And um, my generation, my cousins, my sister, those of us that didn't speak it first, we, we did, we, it's like it got lost on the, the younger ones of us because we were there first and we started school first. So we spoke to them there, which we were, you know, the same generation in English. So the younger ones of my generation have kind of lost it. So, you know, it's important very much so to my parents' generation, my grandmother's generation. And I feel kind of like personally, it's a shame that I didn't know better as a child to continue to speak to my sister in English. And I would speak to my sister, my niece, her kids, my niece and nephew in Spanish. But, um, you know, so I think it's part of, it's a piece of, it's a special piece of the culture. Um, You know, recipes can be passed down. Language can be lost. As we know from history, we've lost so many languages um, to so many native languages. So many native languages, especially. So many, um, Mm -hmm. you know, so many Rosetta Stones out there that are gone, right? So I feel that, you know, if we, Mm -hmm. language is important and not just, Spanish, like the Spanish Academy version of Spanish, your your version of Spanish growing up in your home is so valuable as part of, mm-hmm. it's a special part of a connection to family. Right. And as you mentioned, Spanish is not one monolithic language either. Of course, there are many dialects, in, including within every individual, primarily Spanish speaking country. So it's, exactly. you know, it does connect you very specifically to your culture and your upbringing. I'll say any thoughts on that. You know, I when I heard the question, and I think that's a wonderful question. I I I'm thinking about two things. You know, number one, I remember when I was in graduate school, um, someone was asked about to describe their experience here in the U.S. And it, I will never forget what she said. She said, "Look, I communicate in English, but I feel in Spanish." Hmm. Um, and to me, that was so beautiful because at the end of the day, what. Uh, Yamile is talking about is about that the fact that you know um, you know our culture and and what we've done and our history and things that are valuable to us are passed down truly from generation to generation in Spanish you know uh, I my wife and I would try to speak um, Spanish to to our kids when they were growing up and the reality is that they had no choice right because they had Mm -hmm. to communicate with grandma and with grandpa and aunt 
and uh, and uh, their cousins and you know so th they had to be able to uh, speak to them in Spanish so they struggle a little bit but now I see the value of that because although they are fully American citizens born and raised in this country 100% supportive of of uh, you know this beautiful nation I see their effort in continuing to learn the language and kind of understand um, you know their ancestry um, so yeah. so I, I, I truly see the value and then the other point I want to make is uh, as much as we talk about Spanish and how important it is for us, I think that there's a responsibility that we have as, as uh, Hispanics to learn English and to fully assimilate to the country. You know, I was reading um, uh, some recent research and it said that, that you know, which I was happy about, 72% of Latinos ages five and older speak English proficiently. And that was as of hmm. 2019. So I'm assuming that the number is going up, and that which shows that you know the 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 reality of Hispanics in this country. So if you if you talk about 72 percent of Latinos that speak English fluently, you know the reality is a little different than than what uh, what some people try to you know portray it. Uh, so we're 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 very committed to assimilating uh, into uh, you know this culture and contributing to the culture, but also. Uh, you know, we value and um, uh, you know our, our our language and our our heritage the same way, right? Which just enriches the culture that you're taking part in as well. Absolutely. You know, as 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 Emila was talking about losing languages and lost languages, I just I couldn't help but thinking about what losing a language actually means, because losing a language language is the primary way that we communicate culture and that we communicate history and we communicate everything that brought us to where we are today. And so losing a language it can be a really tragic thing, not only on an, a you know, large level, a, a people level, but also on an individual level. Yeah, if, if I can comment on that, I'll give you an example. My, my grandmother that I mentioned, uh, she's deaf now. And um, she learned English and it was always reinforced when she could hear English. So my other cousins were able to speak to her in English, but now that's not reinforced because she's not hearing it. So the only folks that can speak to her uh, with her hearing issues, Spanish, we have to speak Spanish to her. So it's sometimes I wind up saying what my cousin is saying to my grandmother in Spanish, she tells me in English. So if I'm not there, there's a loss of communication because of the loss of the language in one generation. So- That's really tragic. Yeah. So. But it's good that you've held on to that. Well, you know, I'll be gone one day too. So hopefully my, that's why yeah. I deliberately speak to my sister's kids in Spanish. But I, um, I think what Jose is doing is very valuable to continue to keep that language alive in their home. And uh, we, we need to keep things alive because, uh, you know, even in the workplace, we're constantly looking for translations of documents. Hey, we need somebody to translate this handbook in Spanish. We need this form signed in Spanish. Yep. We need this safety manual in Spanish or any other language. I'm using Spanish because this is our topic today. But you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's cool that you have folks that are speaking both languages so that the world yeah. and everything around the world and all the opportunities that are present are available to all. Yeah, and I, honestly, I think more people who speak English as a first language also have a responsibility to step outside of their comfort zone and learn about the things that are going on around them, which also means, you know, learning a little bit about this other language that, I mean, there are many languages spoken in the U.S., but Spanish is spoken at home by approximately 15% of Americans. So it's a, it's a very prevalent 
it has a very prevalent place in, in our society. And I think it's something that English speaking Americans also have a responsibility to learn about and learn about this other language in our, in our midst. So I, I read a statistic um, from the Pew Research Center, a study in 2019 um, reported that 20% of Spanish speaking people had been criticized for speaking Spanish in public. I'm wondering if that's anything that either of you has ever experienced or if you have any thoughts on why that might be or what we can do to uh, help correct that situation. So speaking to the criticism, so I don't know if you remember, or maybe maybe it's not being in your, your sphere, but what happens since I do a lot of employment law issues, we get a lot of English only in the workplace type issues that come up. So that's usually where I see that. I think folks in general just think it's polite to speak in a language that everyone can understand you and if you're not in, if you're a mixed company, just from a manners perspective. But where I see that come up a lot is workplace, English only workplace, English only, English only, and uh, not just Spanish, different languages from the different Asian countries mm. and the Eastern European countries. So uh, it's, a sh it's a shame because it, it, it divides people mm -hmm. and it feel people kind of have this sense of alienation when I see this come up in the workplace and uh, it also you know just from a workplace perspective what are you saying when you, you're not willing to somehow accommodate a language so that someone can be understood right because how many play times do we use translators for people that are hard of hearing that use sign language right so yeah. it struggles so that just just to clarify, that's that's employers who mm -hmm. try to yeah. mandate there's English a lot, only. There's in employers and workplaces that try to mandate English only. Sometimes that's made it as far as uh, some ballots in some in some states for election purposes. Yeah. So, wow. you know, language is is how we connect and identify, and sometimes it's how we alienate, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to look at that yeah. piece and see we talk about inclusion how how are we going to include without alienating in terms of language yeah absolutely i think expecting someone to communicate solely in something that isn't their first language that you're sort of i mean not only are you robbing that person of their identity but you're also you're really robbing your company of of an asset and 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 an option to expand your horizons and and to learn a little bit more yeah, and it's you know if you look at it from a different perspective, when I go to France, yes, they expect me to remember my French. Yep. <laughs> they expect me to speak French. Yes. Um, or I'm not getting that yummy box of chocolates in the window that I want. Exactly. Yeah, I've, I, so, I've traveled a bit in France myself, and it's the same thing. I'm by far I'm far from a fluent French speaker, but you know I've certainly tried to tried to make it so that I could make myself understood. Right. And we look at that in terms of being tourists in another country, yep. but in our workplace where we have to have safety protocols, where we have to help people yep. um, rise to their best, yeah. which is a critical part of that. Yeah, I always find it infuriating when anyone criticizes someone for um, not being a fluent English speaker, most prominently not being a fluent English speaker, because I always think that person speaks at least two languages and I speak one language. Right. And so I can't the the amount of the amount of learning it takes to learn not one language, but more than one. And some people are speaking, you know, two or three 
I think is, mm -hmm. I, we should regard that as, as nothing other than just impressive that somebody can even do that. Yeah, interesting thing. They do studies on learning second language. It's on the right side of the brain. Mm -hmm. So sometimes folks have a stroke on the left side of the brain and they mm -hmm. lose their native language and can speak the second language. So wow. the lifeline. So That's fascinating. language is important and uh, second language is a creative function also. So, yeah. you know, we, we need to we need to embrace the ability to stay in touch and communicate with everybody so we stay connected, not separated. Yeah, I saw an article on um, it was some celebrity's child who was learning to speak Spanish, the English speaking family learning to speak Spanish at home. And the article was about, you know, how great and how impressive it is, which it is great to teach children mm -hmm. another language. But a commenter on the on the post said, that's great, but this is something that immigrants and children of immigrants do all the time. So just sort of put it into, pers into perspective for me that here we are celebrating this thing. And meanwhile, millions of people are just doing this as a matter of everyday life. I had to learn English. I was, ter I was terrified starting kindergarten in this country, I not bet. understanding anything, nothing. And I still remember that day. And I'm, I bet. I'm up there. I was afraid of kindergarten and I, I speak English and that's all I've, I've ever spoken. So it complicates it even more. So uh, the other thing I, I wanted to talk about today, and then um, we can start to wrap it up, uh, unless either of you have something else you'd like to discuss, is some of the challenges that Hispanic and Latinx Americans face. So um, that, that same study from the Pew Research Center I mentioned from 2019 mentioned that 40% of Hispanic and Latinx Americans reported experiencing discrimination in the previous 12 months. And 30% said someone had expressed um, expressed a negative attitude to them, either calling them a name or criticizing them for doing something um, related to their, their identity. Is that something that the two of you have experienced? And what are your thoughts on that? I think I'm, a, I'm gonna start there. And, and the answer is yes, unfortunately, I personally have experienced it, uh, especially when I came to the US and was still learning uh, the ways, uh, you know, here in the society and things that I had to do and how to communicate in English. And I do remember, you know, one of my first jobs, I was kind of mixing the I with the E's because, you know, in Spanish, they sound differently. And just to look at in some people and some of them would come to me and say, hey, you know, you're, are you stupid? You know, and, and it's unfortunate. Uh, but, but, but again, you know, it's one of those things that we, we as a society have to overcome. Um, I, and what are some of the things that have to be overcome? What are some of the challenges that we are facing? Again, based on my experience, and you mentioned one of them, Zach, uh, discrimination and racism. Mm -hmm. I, fortunately, I live in a, in South Florida and, uh, you know, where, 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 you know, you, there are, uh, people from different countries and then, you know, you don't truly experience that a whole lot. Uh, but there are other, in other places where discrimination is, is, is the daily thing. Um, it's what they go through on a daily basis. And um, the stigmas, and that's another thing, is, you know, it's like if you're a Latino, you're supposed to, you know, play a guitar or wear, a, mm. you know, sombrero or, you know, these stigmas about who we are. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that we, we have to go beyond that and deep a little, go a little deeper to understand. I think poverty and lack of resources is another big piece, um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, you see, you see, you know, the typical 
businesses that you see in a, in a Hispanic community or any, you know, a minority community are the, the bail bonds uh, places. Or you see mm-hmm. you know, the check cashing stores or, or, you know, on all those places that truly keep us, uh, you know, in poverty. Yeah, uh, they're and, predatory. You know, of course, I mean, I want to mm-hmm. see more, more schools. I want to see more, um, you know, places where business owners can, small business owners can flourish. And uh, new ideas and incub- incubators and all the, the beautiful things that, that other communities have. Then, and you mentioned something that I want to comment, if you may, for one second is, is you know, the challenge of being misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Uh, years ago, in a program, one of the programs that I handled uh, that I mentioned earlier in our conversation for well educated and, and professional refugees that came to the country, some of them, like I said, they have been successful entrepreneurs, and some of them have more than one or two degrees. Uh, I remember uh, one of my clients, he was a doctor and a, and a lawyer, and mm-hmm. very successful, but he had to you know, come to the U.S. And I remember their, their number were, the number one fear that they had was to be discriminated and misunderstood because they didn't speak uh, the language. Right. You know, the fear of being treated like they were ignorant or uneducated because they couldn't speak the language. I think that that's a huge fear that we have to recognize in people that are come to the U.S., you know, in their um, adult years, and uh, they have to assimilate. There, there, there's, a, there's a lot of fear that goes with it. Um, and then, you know, another challenge is in the workplace at large, you know, lack of opportunities, companies with where, you know, diversity and inclusion are more like, you know, a few sentences uh, or pictures in a website and not truly a desire to learn and to embrace the richness of Hispanic culture like we're doing now, which is why I'm feel, I feel so proud that I work at Paychex. Because that's, these are things that we breathe. These are things that is natural for us. We don't have to force it. We don't have to force a conversation about inclusion and diversity because this is something that we breathe naturally. Uh, but again, you know, it is still a, a challenge out there uh, for, for many, uh, many Latinos. Yeah, and, and I, would, I would say, I'll, I'll turn that challenge a bit back on um, other, other folks, especially white Americans, European Americans, and that is challenge your assumptions and challenge your preconceived notions and mm-hmm. examine, examine your reactions and your thoughts and find, find the source of why you might look at somebody who doesn't speak English fluently and make an assumption about their intelligence or make an assumption about their ability to understand because that comes from, um, a, I think, a deep-rooted racism that uh, a lot of us just sort of contend with and cope with. And it doesn't make it somebody's, you know, it doesn't make it somebody's fault, but it's certainly our responsibility to address it and to fix it. Absolutely. And and if I can jump in, Jose, you hit on so many things that are so, so valid and go to the heart of uh, what happens to folks when they come to this country and don't speak the language and they come with profession and education, doctors, lawyers, accountants, and they want to go back into those fields, but they have more and more challenges because they have to learn the language, they have to learn the culture, they have to find the ability and the means to go to school and basically do it all over again after having done it in the country of origin that they already did it in. So it's it's a it's to your point about the uh, the celebrity's child learning Spanish. Cultures, people coming from all countries that have been established and worked and had to leave those countries for different reasons for a better life here, they're taking on that Herculean hurdle 
two and three times because it's already hard enough mm -hmm. to go to professional school and university the first time around. And then to have to learn a language and find the resources and find the means, because we all know an education is not usually free in this country to do it. So there's def that's definitely a, quite a challenge for the Spanish speaking communities. And in addition to that, that's kind of been the place of my career. People coming into the workplace and saying, you know, they think I'm an idiot because I have an accent or I don't speak well. In my country, I was mm -hmm. a doctor. I applied for this promotion to a CNA, a certified nursing assistant, and they don't think I could do it because my English isn't good. Mm -hmm. I'm a doctor. I'm a medical. So you see that happening and it, it stifles advancement of mm -hmm. these cultures and these folks on so many levels. And to Jose's point about the tokenism of having a diverse workforce, that's great. The numbers don't mean anything unless you're listening and engaging and leveraging that workforce. So don't tell me you have 54% diversity in your school or in your workforce when they're stifled in terms of their ability to advance, grow, and even um, simple things like uh, tuition reimbursement because uh, they don't know how to fill yep. out the form because it's in yeah. English. And there's a beautiful opportunity for people to advance. And um, uh, like Jose was saying, come into this culture and in this country and, and do, do better for not just themselves, but to leverage this country to leverage and the different employers to leverage. You know, the more uh, companies that leverage their workforce are about 35% more profitable. We've done study after study after study in HR. And so say, I'm sure you've read these also where folks want to shop and patronize and give their money to places that they identify with. So oh, yeah. the little Cuban bodega down the street where my parents always shop, you know what? That's where I make a beeline to when I'm in town. I always go to that bodega, right? I could go to the grocery store up the street from me, but I go to what's familiar and uh, all cultures do that. That's why we have these beautiful enclave economies like we have in Miami, we have Little Italy, we have Chinatown, we have these enclave economies all over the country and all over the world yep. because people seek to be with what they feel is familiar and known and where they feel accepted and not judged. Absolutely. If I know that a local business is LGBTQ owned or friendly, I'm absolutely patronizing yep. that business. Yep. And the opposite right. is true as well. If I know that that's not a space where I'm welcome, I'm not going to partake in that space. Yeah, I hear you. But uh, I think our challenge in um, this day and age is to not just diversify, but listen and leverage and apply the ways to bring those voices to be heard and have a seat at the proverbial table. And, you know, we say this in terms of the Hispanic and Latin communities, but think of it in terms of folks with neurodiversities, any kind of disability, mm -hmm. any kind of language challenge doesn't have to be, I don't speak English. It could be that I, I simply have a physical problem and can't speak. Some folks that stutter, right? So absolutely. We actually, we had a really great conversation on this podcast in our second episode with our VP of HROD. Karen McClendon, and uh, we talked a little bit about disability and neuro neuroatypical folks. Um, so yeah, that's um, that's definitely something that uh, that we need to explore more. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
All right, so I, I do want to wrap up in just a moment, but before we do, are there any any uh, uh, things that either of you feel like you'd, you'd really like to cover before we do or anything you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I think that the, the only thing that I, I, I think I, I want to uh, mention and make sure that everyone is aware is, I guess, you know, it's uh, my wish is for um, people to truly be open to different points of views. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know it sounds generic, you know, um, and, but the reality is that we have to put aside our personal misconceptions, um, you know, give ourselves an opportunity to truly get to know each other, not just Hispanics, but, you know, people from different countries and identities and everything, you know, we have to truly be open if we wanna be happy, I guess is the simple way to put it, uh, you know, in this world. So, and truly, you know, value the richness of the different cultures and what we, uh, you know, all the benefits that we bring out to, you know, the country, you know, and uh, our community. So I guess, you know, my wish is that, that whoever is listening uh, to this podcast is to, you know, come from this podcast with a decision, you mm -hmm. know, to give themselves a, an opportunity to kind of, you know, put things aside and kind of, you know, get to know other people, pick up the phone and call you know, friends and people from other uh, countries and cultures and, you know, truly kind of get to know them. Yeah, because really, if you do that, you'll enrich your own life as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think my sentiments would be similar to Jose's, that uh, you want to look and listen to this podcast and hear the voice of a culture and identities of people that want to be part of and give their resources, their energy and their creativity to this country and the world, okay? So we're no longer separated by geographical boundaries. We're a world community and we need to embrace the world and the world's cultures and these identities of everyone, regardless of country of origin, language of speaking. We are, as um, Edward James almost said at the UN, one, we're not, the white race, we're not the Hispanic race, we're not the Latin race, we are the human race. And if we see ourselves as connected by humanity, that is the key to leveraging everyone's uh, ingenuity and ability. I don't think I can beat that as a way to wrap up this conversation. That was a, a really great period at the end of, of today's sentence. So just want to say thank you to our guests, to Yamile Ibi and to Jose Bido. Thank you very much for being here uh, with us this month. Uh, for our audience, next month in October is uh, a podcast about celebrating everyone. It's how to recognize and celebrate diversity in your lives and in the workplace. In November, we're looking at talking with folks about veterans in the workplace and the Trans Day of Remembrance. And in December, talking about celebrations, religion, and culture. So we'll talk about Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and all the great holidays that uh, everybody will be celebrating. So thank you again for joining me uh, for Intentionally Inclusive, because no matter who you are, Paychex is a place where you belong. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. This podcast is property of Paychex Inc. 2021. All rights reserved.